Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Resuming Debate podcast. We're trying something a little bit different this time. Uh, We're bringing to you a recording of a live event that I hosted on Parliament Hill. Uh, The event is The Dance. It's a symposium on the relationship between international development and geopolitical competition. We hosted this during International Development Week. It was an opportunity to hear from diplomats, uh, experts, a whole interesting range of people about this complicated relationship between international development, that is fighting poverty around the world, and advancing our national interest in a time of intensifying global competition. I explain a little bit more about the nature of the event and my thoughts on the topic uh, at the beginning uh, when I give introductory remarks. I hope you enjoy this format as part of our Resuming Debate podcast, and please share your feedback with me about how you think it went. Uh, So here is The Dance. All right, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry about the delay. We will, uh, we will uh, try to make up a little bit of time as we go. And uh, I want to thank you all very much for being here. We've had a, an incredible response. Um, it has been a, it's been a very busy week. I'm sure it's been for, for all of you. It's, it's happy International Development Week. It's Wednesday and I'm exhausted. I think we should extend it to International Development Month from now on or two months even. Here, here, I don't know. We have, okay, good. Uh, uh, I want to uh, I want to thank uh, my uh, team in the office who have uh, done all the work as as usually happens. I do very little. I just sort of receive good ideas, give direction to my staff, and receive some of the credit along the way. Uh, so thank you, Darina, who's who's done the lion's share of the work, but the rest of the team, James, Ali, Malia. Um, I want to particularly thank the office of MP Arnold Viersen for partnering with us on this event. And the whole concept of this uh, uh, owes itself to a conversation I had. I think it was with Kate Higgins. Uh, so thank you for putting this idea. There you are. Thank you for putting this idea in my head. Um, as, as I said, we're, we're sort of, we hear good ideas from other people and then we, we ask our staff to, to action them and, and uh, you know, that's the, the glory of being an elected official. But um, in, in any event, th- thank you again for being here. I, I have the honor of serving as the Shadow Minister for International Development for the Conservative Caucus. International development is foundationally about supporting and assisting the most vulnerable around the world in their efforts to better their situation. International development is centrally about poverty alleviation and the creation of opportunity for individual people in other countries. The pursuit of global strategic objectives is something quite distinct from international development, especially insofar as it aims at the advancement of, uh, in the advancement of national interest instead of at poverty alleviation. So the, the final cause, the telos, the purpose of each activity is distinct. However, that recognition does not mean that these two objectives, combating poverty and advancing the national interest, cannot be pursued concurrently, even through the same policy or program. Citizens would generally, I think, hope that we achieve as much possible as good with any as much po- as much good as possible with any single government expenditure. That likely means using the same program or expenditure to achieve multiple distinct objectives at the same time. In this case, there is a natural unity between these objectives: poverty alleviation and the pursuit of the national interest. Any state that is effectively alleviating poverty is probably earning some degree of recognition and appreciation for that work, which builds relationships which may be useful for the advancement and realization of national interest objectives. It goes the other way too. We generally 
define our national interests as relating to the spread of freedom, democracy, and peaceful trade relations, as well as the defeat of hostile powers and terrorist organizations. Uh, when realized, these objectives all contribute to poverty alleviation as well. Now, we've called this symposium the dance because I think two people dancing is a powerful picture of the kind of relationship that exists between international development and the pursuit of national strategic objectives. They can both excel together if their movements are well-coordinated. They can produce something more beautiful together than an individual dancing on their own. But a dance is not about one person dominating or taking precedence over the other, and each must preserve their individuality. They must be careful not to step on each other's toes. It is possible that efforts at poverty alleviation could involve spending money in ways that effectively leave too much in the hands of hostile governments or organizations whose interests undermine international peace and security. That might be a case of development stepping on the toes of achieving strategic objectives. It is also possible that the pursuit of a legitimate strategic objective, such as the isolation of a hostile state, could undermine the delivery of essential humanitarian assistance to a vulnerable population. And herein obviously lie some very difficult trade-offs. The goal of today's symposium is to invite reflection on this dance, on the relationship between international development and geostrategic competition, especially during a period of intensifying geostrategic competition. I believe that we are in a new Cold War, in a battle between the free democratic world and the unfree anti-democratic world. Conflict is incentivizing different approaches to international development, and it is also undermining some of the gains made by international development. For instance, we see in Africa how one kind of conflict, threats from violent extremist organizations, is creating an opportunity for the entry of another kind of conflict, Russia and China offering to quote-unquote help and hope to displace Western influence in the process. Clearly, this Cold War reality is changing the world in which international development operates. For my part, I would insist on the critical importance of the achievement of both of these objectives. Uh, the alleviation of poverty and victory in this new Cold War, a Cold War in which our most fundamental freedoms are at stake. Now, today we're bringing together uh, parliamentarians and staff and also practitioners uh, from, from both sides of that, uh, of that dance, international development uh, and strategic competition experts. We're going to hear from uh, Chinello Agomize, Apologies if I butcher any pronunciations along the way here. Uh, Senior Policy Advisor at the Canadian Food Grains Bank, uh, who will help us understand the, relation, the, the uh, perspectives of the development sector on this relationship. Andrei Bukovic, Deputy Head of Mission at the Embassy of Ukraine, uh, who's going to reflect on international development from that perspective. Uh, and I know maybe from you and from others, we'll be hearing about um, the outreach happening to the Global South in the context of the ongoing war. Uh, Luke DePulford, Executive Director of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, who has successfully built a global network of legislators to combat PRC influence, a network that includes legislators in the developed and developing world. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute and a widely sought-after expert on China. Uh, Henry Tsang, the Taiwanese Ambassador, will share with us about Taiwan's engagement in the Global South and how Taiwan seeks to advance its interests while supporting international development. I.D. Inyangador, Vice President of Wellington Advocacy and a former senior staffer working on international development in the Harper government, will share his perspective on these issues, working on uh, uh, development both inside and outside of government. Susan Namalindwa, Founder and Executive Director of the Africa Trade Desk, will offer us a good perspective on how trade fits into this, this uh, dance. 
Uh, Zaw Kya, spokesman of the government of the Republic of the Union of Myanmar. Uh, those are the good ones, by the way. Sometimes when we hear government, they wonder. But he's, he's, he's with the, uh, the NUG, the, the pro-democracy guys. Uh, and he'll discuss the delivery of aid in Burma in the very difficult context of a civil war between a criminal junta that occupies the capital and a civilian-led alternative. Uh, this is a hot manifestation of the, of the uh, global Cold War, and we look forward to hearing his perspective. And then finally, Ali Masseim Nasseri, head of foreign relations for the National Resistance Front of Afghanistan, will, br uh, will bring us uh, to the situation in Afghanistan to talk about how to deliver aid in an environment where a terrorist organizer organization is in control and how we can fight poverty while supporting opposition groups and advancing our security interests. I should mention that uh, Mr. Nasri will also be uh, speaking tonight at a reception that we have focused specifically uh, on Afghanistan. Some of you may already be uh, attending that, but, but uh, if you're interested, uh, we can share more information uh, later on. So the format for today's event is simple. Each speaker has 10 minutes. And in order to stay as on time as possible, in light of where we are now especially, I will be ruthless in keeping people to their 10-minute slot. Speakers are welcome to speak as long as possible within that slot. Any time left over will be for questions. Uh, some may speak for five, six, seven minutes and, and leave time for questions. Others um, may get going and speak for the full 10 minutes, which, um, which I've invited them to do as, as they wish. Uh, but we need, to, we need to stay on time to make sure we hear from everyone because we've quite a, got quite a lineup of speakers and we're going through sequentially. Um, there uh, is supposed to be a coffee break in the middle uh, that will allow people to have informal interactions with speakers during that time and afterwards, although we may shorten the coffee break a little bit because of where we are time-wise. Um, uh, this uh, Guests are, are welcome to come and go if they need to. Um, we have structured the event to facilitate. I think there will be some people that, that drop in for parts and then have to go for, for other parts of it. Um, we are recording this entire event. If you miss any of the presentations, uh, the, the entire symposium is being recorded and will be online on my podcast. It's called Resuming Debate. Uh, I think we introduce, we release a lot of interesting content there. And of course, uh, you can like, uh, share, subscribe, leave a review, etc., uh, to hear uh, past and future uh, um, past and future episodes of Resuming Debate. But we will be publishing this this whole um, this whole symposium there. Okay, and having uh, introduced all the speakers to you now, uh, I will not be doing introductions uh, as we go. Um, we'll we'll keep it quick. Uh, for the transition in between. And uh, without any uh, further ado then, I will invite uh, Ms. Agam Ize to take the stage. Uh, sorry, just waiting for my slides. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay, I don't need to introduce myself any further. I'll just start. I'd like you to meet Isaac. He's a 36, year old ma 36 years old man. He's married and has a family size of seven people. Isaac is from South Sudan. Prior to the conflict in 2016 and COVID-19, his situation was normal. He was a teacher at a secondary school in Juba. He also undertook some farming activities in his village where he grew maize and beans and sold his produce in the Juba market. In his words, life was good. When the conflict erupted in Ye between government and opposition forces, there were killings and torture. Both groups did not spare the lives of civilians. Isaac and his family took refuge in Uganda. 
Isaac has since returned to South Sudan. His return was not without challenges. Isaac was one of the participants in a Canadian Food Grains Bank funded project. As a part of this project, he received cash transfers, agricultural inputs and tools, seedlings for planting and training on the use of conservation agriculture. As a result of this project's interventions, he was able to return to farming. From the increased sales from his garden produce, he started rearing rabbits. He joined a savings group and initiated a farming group that currently has 26 members. He is able to cater to his household and live in his own home. This project that was funded by Canadian Food Grains Bank and implemented through partners was supported by the government of Canada. Isaac's story is one of millions of people facing challenges in South Sudan. As we all know, South Sudan is one of the newest nation states, having been created in 2011 and was born out of protracted crisis. The humanitarian situation in South Sudan has persisted in view of the compounding effects of years of conflict, inter-ethnic violence and climate-related shocks, such as dry spells and flooding. These also exist within a context of currency depreciation and high food prices, leading to greater food insecurity. An estimated 9.4 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. Women and children continue to be disproportionately affected. These needs are further heightened by the population fleeing the violence in neighboring Sudan since the violence began in April 2023. In the midst of this, Isaac is a success story of international development alongside other participants of this project. This success is not only seen replicated by Canadian Food Grains Bank, but also by numerous charitable organizations seeking to shift the needle. This is what international assistance does. It enables organizations such as ours to do our bit and contribute our quota. The challenges faced by South Sudan are similar to those. The challenges faced by South Sudan are similar to those faced by many countries. In the world today, conflicts are protracted and instability continuing. These conflicts threaten the stability of governments, economies, and families. Across the world, we have seen democratic governance being challenged either by the rise of authoritarian regimes, populism, or terrorism. In addition to these, a number of global issues are before world leaders. Firstly, the climate crisis. More and more countries are facing the impact of extreme weather events. The number of such events doubled between 1990 and 2016. Whether it's the drought and famine in the Horn of Africa, the lack of water in the Sahel, or flooding in many parts of Africa, Asia, or South America. Canada is also not spared, with the unprecedented wildfires seen in 2023. More and more people and their livelihoods are affected. Secondly, food insecurity. The, cri the climate crisis is having a direct impact on our ability to feed the world. Farms, be it subsistence or large scale, and the ability to produce food are being eroded, coupled with conflict, which causes persons and farmers to abandon their livelihoods for safety. Food insecurity is also being driven by global inflation 
and a cost of living issue that is only affecting Canada that is not only affecting Canada but many countries worldwide and causing millions to resort to negative coping mechanisms. It's also important to know that about 60% of low-income countries are in debt distress or risk of debt distress. Thirdly, deterioration of human rights. With rising hostilities and the challenge to democratic governance, human rights are under threat, particularly for women and children. These challenges have led to the intensification of humanitarian emergencies and a holding steady of humanitarian needs and these needs are enormous. These challenges also do not leave room for development to thrive. This is only a brief synopsis of the issues before each and every one of us, but more importantly, our leaders. Why is this important? And why should Canada care? What is Canada's role in this? The fast-changing politics and the challenges above outlined demand that Canada step up. The fact is that is there is a vacuum of global leadership. This is a shoe that Canada can fill. Canada is known for being a leader on the global stage. In the past when Canada has stepped up, our efforts have had remarkable impacts. Some examples include our initiative on maternal and child health, girls' education, standing with Ukraine in the face of the Russian invasion, to name a few. Canada, through its official development assistance, has made an impact in the world, and there is soft power that comes with ODA. Canada's soft power is its value add. This soft power through words also needs to be underpinned by action. Canada needs to be more vocal about its investments in international development. I'll use the continent of Africa as an example. The United States and the United Kingdom are well known for their international development. It is not only felt by beneficiaries, but it is seen and spoken about. There are diplomatic engagements that showcase their works. China is exerting its presence through infrastructure and Russia is making inroads. Through my work in Nigeria and Ethiopia, I can say that Canada is that although Canada is making investments, Canada needs to be more vocal about its investments and have a strategy for these investments. Investments in international developments could also in the long run have positive implications for trade. Furthermore, Canada's investments in international assistance can also signal to the world and other leaders what priorities should be. When I reference investments, I do not mean only ODA, but also our expertise. Canada has a lot to offer the world. Let's leverage our collective expertise. The ability to share our expertise has been seen in Food Grains Bank projects on conservation agriculture, which has proven to address food insecurity challenges. Canada needs to have feet on the ground. This has a huge impact on populations and populations influence leaders. In this geopolitical dance, they are the three Ds and T. Canada cannot choose to focus on defense, diplomacy and trade to the detriment of development. Development is a key component. I'll conclude by saying that investing in international development can forestall future challenges for Canada. 
Canada cannot focus on the domestic to the detriment of geopolit to the detriment of geopolitical relevance, of which international development is central. Canada cannot afford to turn a blind eye to the world. International aid not only benefits people like Isaac and countries like South Sudan, it also benefits donor countries such as Canada. The ability to impact one person's life makes a difference. Lastly, we cannot forget the individual like Isaac in pursuit of geopolitical competition. Thank you. Excellent content and excellent timing. Thank you. Uh, and we'll now uh, go directly to hear from uh, Mr. Bukvich. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, dear guests and colleagues, honorable MPs, Mr. Genius, let me share with you some lessons Ukraine learned about the importance of complex reform when it comes to development that opens the door for being successful on the regional and global level, and why it is very important to choose wisely your development partner. November 2023 and February 2024 are very special dates for Ukrainians. Both are the dates of remembering about the existential challenges we faced and what we have been through uh, since then, against all odds. These days we commemorate the 10th anniversary of the Revolution of Dignity born from the Ukrainian people's resolute desire to join the European family to which we always belonged. We mark also second anniversary of genocidal war of choice unleashed by Russia against Ukraine and Ukrainians. And of course, we reflect on the road we have passed in the last decade. What helped us to withstand and what inspired Ukrainians? What, uh, what we developed successfully to overcome the complex crisis of political system enhanced by the first Russian invasion and occupation. Reflecting on challenges faced by Ukraine in 2014, particularly the Russian invasion and occupation, it becomes evident that the resilience of our nation has been tested in multiple forms. The complex circumstances demanded strategic response and crucial commitment to reforms that went beyond immediate economic concerns and gains. In 2014, Ukraine faced significant challenges that, ha that had far-reaching implications. Some of the key challenges include political crisis that began with mass protests in Kyiv, capital of Ukraine, demanding the government to sign an association agreement with Europe instead of closer ties with Russia. Ex-President Yanukovych fled Ukraine in February 2014. His government disappeared. The only institution that remained functional was parliament. We, uh, then the occupation in Crimea. In February and March 2014, Russian military intervention of Crimea escalated, culminating in a sham state referendum in which Crimea allegedly voted to join Russia. Occupation of Eastern Ukraine. Following the occupation of Crimea, Russian proxies and military groups organized and armed by Russia started occupation of eastern regions of Ukraine, particularly Donetsk and Lugansk. Armed conflicts between Ukrainian armed forces and Russian proxies intensified throughout 2014, leading to a full-scale war in eastern Ukraine. Political turmoil and Russian military invasion had severe consequences for Ukraine's economic, economy, trade and investments. Ukrainian energy dependence on Russian natural gas posed a significant challenge. Russia bluntly blackmailed Ukraine and cut off gas supplies, leaving millions of Ukrainians to freeze out in February. 
Russian occupation of eastern Ukraine and Crimea resulted in a humanitarian crisis with displacement of civilians, damage to infrastructure, and loss of lives. So the political crisis of 2013-14 and subsequent events, including the occupation of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine, brought about a dire economic situation. Newly formed Ukrainian government was called kamikaze, and there is, for, uh, there is a reason for that. Ukraine faced a significant loss of economic and industri industrial regions, coupled with a sharp decline in GDP and weakened currency. The financial system teetered on the brink of collapse, and efforts to carve the bank run proved challenging. In face of these daunting challenges, the importance of reforms became apparent. The urgency to maintain macroeconomic stability was paramount. The government, faced uh, with a dire financial situation, had to make difficult decisions to navigate through the crisis. International support, including assistance from G7 countries, the US, Canada, EU, IMF, World Bank, and EBRD, played a crucial role in stabilizing the economy. However, the financial support came with conditions, including reforms that at first glance may have seemed unrelated to the immediate economic survival and development. While struggling to address economic challenges, the Ukrainian government had to implement reforms in areas seemingly indirect to urgent economic needs. Imagine, you are a prime minister whose government cannot find a supply of natural gas, which should be an alternative to monopolists who weaponize its inclusive supply to get the political benefits of EU, or leftovers on state treasury account are not enough to pay pensions to 10 million of retired Ukrainians, or even salary to public servants. In such situation, which is a real case of 2014-2017, you would be surprised, if not shocked, to find out that among top priorities in recommended reforms list, there are such things as freedom of speech and press, which is guaranteeing freedoms of expression, protecting independent media, and ensuring journalistic integrity, foster transparency, accountability, and public disclosure, political freedoms, up upholding democratic principles, ensuring free and fair elections, and protecting political rights and freedoms, promote political stability, legitimacy, and citizen participation, human rights protection, safeguarding fundamental human rights, including civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights, contributes to social justice, equality, and inclusivity, developing and supporting non-governmental organizations and the civil sector. In other words, while your government is struggling to pay rent and bills, you are expected to spend limited resources on independent newspapers, foreign observers at the elections, or support numerous debates on what bills to be paid first. These decisions are hard to take when every penny counts. Nevertheless, reforms in freedom of speech, political freedoms, human rights protection, and the development of non-governmental organizations were emphasized and implemented. It turned out that these seemingly indirect reforms were crucial components of our future resilience. They laid the foundation for robust civil society, media independence, and democratic principles, elements that proved invaluable during subsequent challenges. Fast forward to 2022, and the results of these reforms became, uh, became evident during the Russian re-invasion. When in 2022, big international brands in humanitarian assistance failed to deliver food and medication to Ukrainian cities occupied by Russians, it was numerous Ukrainian volunteers and non-governmental organizations that quickly deployed their operations. They were ready to risk their lives to help those who suffered. They didn't have big budgets and well-recognized brands, but they knew how to operate independently, effectively, and they had trust. 
trust to raise billions in donations from Ukrainians, Ukrainian and foreign donors. Volunteers have created in Ukraine a powerful machine converting donations and humanitarian support delivered right at the door, doors of those who in need. When most international media outlets started covering Russian reinvasion in February 2022 from Moscow or from Kiev in the best case, it was Ukrainian independent journalists who were not afraid of Russian shelling and bombing. They reported right from the epicenters of the invasion occupied cities and the front line. The international observers who watch Ukrainian elections were the top advocates of immediate foreign assistance to Ukraine to counter aggression. That's because they watch not only elections, but the formation of young democracy, sharing their values and being ready to, to defend them fearlessly when time came. Ukrainians stood up to defend their country as one, not because party or president told them to do so. They were ready to fight for their freedoms, identity and right to choose their future. I wish it, wouldn't, it would not be a war that demonstrated so vividly the importance of reforms and development in various areas. Investment into civil sector and freedoms helps country to be resilient and better prepared for challenges of up unprecedented scale. We learned our lesson. We can share our experience of reforms and development. We can assure you that it's, it's not only economic factors that matter when you choose your development strategy and development partner. There are things that cannot be measured and priced, but which are absolutely essential when it comes to the existence of the any state, country or nation. Freedom of speech, civil sector and political rights are equally important as energy or tax reform. Without investments in human capital, any state is risking facing potential aggression without people who understand what they are fighting for. Now Ukrainians reopened the relations with African, Latin Americans, Middle East and Asian countries. We realized that the war against Ukraine needs to be explained to our partners in all countries. Sometimes things that seem obvious to us are seen through different optics because of distance, history or distortion by global Russian propaganda. Therefore, we are doubling our diplomatic efforts in uh, Global South countries, opening new missions and looking to share our experience to build a successful competitive state. We would be happy to share with our partners uh, our achievements in agriculture and IT sector, but also we are happy to tell, to share with them how we benefited from reforms and how they defined our development and resistance. Today, Ukraine is on the path to reforms too. The path has not become easier as our ambitious goals are to become a member of the European Union and NATO. Ukraine applied for EU membership in February 20, uh, 2022, right uh, in the midst of the aggression, and was granted EU candidate status in June 2022. On 8th of November 2023, uh, the European Commission recommended opening accession negotiation with Ukraine. On 14th of December 2023, the European Council decided to open accession negotiations with Ukraine. While EU candidacy marks a positive development for Ukraine, including stronger regional and global competitiveness, it is also entails challenges and responsibilities. We must continue our efforts in implementing reforms and meeting the criteria outlined by the EU for eventual membership. The EU candidacy is, is a dynamic process that reflects a commitment to a common future built on the shared values and aspirations. 
Today, Ukrainian people continue their fight not only for existence and national identity, but for their future as a part of big European and Euro-Atlantic family. And just last passage, why it is uh, uh, you have to be wise about picking development par partner. Last night, Russia spent half billion dollars for missile and drones attacking civilians in Ukraine. While uh, High uh, EU Commissioner for Foreign Affairs and Security Joseph Borrell spent a night in a bomb shelter. And, Ukraine, and Russia, uh, Russia before 2014 were spending billions in the soft power and development assistance to countries including Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now I'm pleased to welcome uh, Mr. DePulford. Uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, Mr. Jenis. Okay, I'm going to be quite quick, and it would be good if I can leave some time for questions, because I'm making a very simple argument here, and I'd like to hear your reactions to it. Uh, I've rather grandly called this short presentation, Coalition Building in the Age of Super Autocracy. All right, so here's the first predicate of my argument. As the People's Republic of China has grown, um, both in influence and, uh, um, and wealth, Pressure on the rules-based international order has increased. I think this is fairly unarguable. There is a, a, a debate over precisely what the rules-based international order is, which we do not have time to go into here, uh, thankfully. Um, but there are many aspects of China's behavior which are uh, certainly threatening the post-war uh, consensus and many of the international uh, trading human rights rules that we've all become accustomed to. There are a few things here. I mean, there's a, a little chart there, bottom left, talking about the massive increase in state subsidies and other ways that China seeks to undercut the market. Uh, don't propose to go into these in, in great detail right now. Okay, our next slide should be, if it can come up, I hope. All right. This is not working. There we are. Okay, no. Okay, China's um, expansive territorial claims, particularly in the South and East uh, China Seas, in fact, it won't be a surprise to any of you that tension is uh, ramping up across the Taiwan Strait, but not just there. Um, around the Philippines as well, we've seen uh, increasing infringements in what were previously uh, known as uh, fairly settled waters uh, belonging to the Philippines, which is really upsetting uh, their government. Um, I might also just add a couple of uh, brief points here just uh, in answer to uh, two of the presentations that we've just heard. Uh, another way that uh, China is very successfully, it seems, and without any accountability, sidestepping um, international rules and sanctions is through its uh, really shocking support uh, for Russia's illegal war in Ukraine, which it's done so uh, blatantly, um, really sailing very close to the wind and now unarguably, in my view, but also to the first presentation. Um, it has now become impossible to win a vote against the People's Republic of China in the United Nations Human Rights Council. Uh, there are a number of reasons posited for that, but one which is very strong is the influence of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, uh, which is estimated to be up to around $2 trillion worth of investment in infrastructure across the world, uh, which in effect has the effect of uh, buying votes at the Human Rights Council, making it impossible to hold the PRC to account. So that's the first sort of limb of the argument there. Um, we have uh, China's growth bringing a, a corresponding pressure on the rules-based international order. I then want to argue uh, something which I'm calling the super autocrat effect, which is, 
stress on the rules-based international order induced by the PRC has met insufficient resistance from the international community. Um, now, there are loads of examples to focus uh, on here. I'm going to start with uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong was supposed to be protected until 2047 with promises um, that were enshrined in an international treaty, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, uh, which bound both the UK and China to, uh, what was it, up, up, uphold a high degree of autonomy and the way of life of people of Hong Kong, including a lo load of other attendant rights. That um, has not happened. In fact, what has happened is that China has unilaterally completely violated that treaty. It lies in tatters, and the UK has done, uh, regrettably, nothing about it. Nothing about it. There has been no steps towards accountability. The closest that they came was to extend an arms embargo that already applied uh, to China to Hong Kong. That's what the UK thinks uh, counts as accountability for a very clear violation of international law. Um, by the way, the Sino-British Joint Declaration is a treaty lodged at the United Nations, so uh, we should all be custodians uh, for that, including Canada. Uh, next, what has been happening in the northwest of China, in uh, so-called Xinjiang, to the Uyghurs and other predominantly Turkic minorities. Um, some of the MPs uh, seated here uh, were involved in a parliamentary declaration of genocide. Um, this has not seen uh, proper accountability, in my view, from the international community. Very severe human rights abuses, um, which uh, could have affected uh, up to three million people. Um, I think the, the phrase which is often passed around is that the uh, extrajudicial detention of Uyghurs was so huge that it was the largest uh, detention of an ethno-religious minority since the Second World War. Um, that has not seen any accountability uh, corresponding to the nature of the abuse. Uh, next, another example. You know, if I had to list all of these, it would take a very long time, so I'm not going to. Next, economic coercion. Um, Australia uh, had uh, some extraordinarily punitive tariffs supplied to it when it had the temerity to ask for an investigation into the origins of COVID. I think it was 220% on uh, Australian wine. Uh, they weren't alone. Lithuania suffered very badly, again, over their opening of a, a Taiwanese representative office. And so did uh, Taiwan, um, whose pineapples were banned um, in retaliation for, I can't even remember what. But China's economic coercion has not seen, has not seen, the response from the international community that it should have done. Uh, we've heard about various uh, plans. The G7 communicators repeatedly talked about them, but they've yet to materialise. And the EU's complaint um, at the World Trade Organization about China's economic coercion of Lithuania has just been dropped. So there are a few ways um, that the international community has failed to hold China to account for its pressure on the rules-based international order. Um, I feel like I must mention COVID. Um, thank you because, um, well, we just haven't seen any accountability uh, for what clearly was, in the early stages of COVID, a cover-up, unarguably, which did have devastating effects on the rest of the world. All right, so this is where the argument is leading. This has left a vacuum into which legislators have attempted to step. Um, I've tried to list some international groups of legislators here which have tried to do things that their governments are not doing. So these are sort of transnational groups of legislators. We've got one that the Atlantic Council set up, um, Free World Commission or something like that, United for Ukraine, um, one on Iran, and the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, uh, which I co-founded and run. I'm going to say a few things about IPAC here. Um, look, IPAC is now in 35 countries. It started with eight. 
It's a cross-party international initiative. There are now about 350 politicians in it from all over the world. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's had quite a lot of impact. Who, who cares about the thing, basically? Who cares? What can it achieve? It's not governments. Um, well, it can achieve some stuff. I'm going to quickly run you through a brief slide of impact here. It can change the law. It has done, and at least 10 times. Um, this is a collection of something that the co-chairs have done on China here, parliamentary interventions. These are proper parliamentary interventions. Uh, 1,062, I think, was the number there since 2020. And yes, about a third of them were Garnet Genes MP. Um, <laughs> a, a large number of uh, bills and amendments tabled, which I think uh, largely belong to Marco Rubio there. But otherwise, you can see, you know, it, these things can have a framing effect and they can try to push their governments into a better position so that the rules-based international order, uh, whatever, however you might like to define it, can be protected. I've got a couple of minutes, I think, for questions. I'll open the floor. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Luke, uh, obviously you've been working tirelessly on, on this for a number of years. We've been at conferences together. There's a global you know, consensus amongst people that you and others here in this room have met with that we need to partner in a much uh, more coordinated way to combat some of the issues that you're talking about here. How do you see this alliance, which, you know, as Ben and I have paraphrased it as the United Front uh, for Freedom and Democracy, where do you see us going and how do we get more traction here in Canada, which, quite frankly, it's, you know, Garner's done a great job, but there are a few other leaders here in this country that are taking up the mantle as, as they should. Um, so a couple of uh, limbs in answer to your question. First of all, it has to always be above uh, party politics, and that's extraordinarily difficult here at the moment, I think particularly with the inquiry into foreign interference uh, ongoing. Very important that it, it, whatever's done maintains very, very clear uh, bipartisan alliance, wherever it is, and international, because this challenge is beyond party politics and beyond uh, geography. Uh, the other thing is that, frankly, you just have to try to find ways of incentivizing political activity in order to ensure that people keep pushing this down the road. MPs have got thousands of things to worry about. Why should they concentrate on China unless, um, to some degree, it's in uh, their interests? So you have to use the media. Uh, you have to try to use uh, whatever you can in order to uh, amplify that message and incentivize that message so that people keep working on it. A couple of things to say there. Do I have time for one more? No. 30, 30 seconds left. 30 seconds for one more? No. Oh, one here. Have you seen examples of African nations pushing back on China or any sort of coordinated attempt to do that in terms of the Belt and Road or trade? So there are two African countries in IPAC, and neither of them have been particularly active in their legislatures on these issues, um, mainly because their governments are so in hoc that it's extraordinarily difficult. So that's a brief summary and answer, but perhaps we can chat about it separately. Thank you. Thank you very much, and that will segue well into uh, Dr. Burton's comments. Okay, let's see. Oh, okay, it did it by itself. Um, yeah, I'd like to pick up on what uh, Garnet was saying at the beginning, which is, you know, China's development assistance program reflects the values, interests, and purposes of that nation's international policy, you know, just as Canada's does. I mean, we put a lot of stress in our development on gender equity and the empowerment of women and girls, which in one government document I looked at says is the central focus integrated into all other priorities. Um, you know, this is not a developmental priority for 
most of the targeted nations of our developmental aid. So, you know, we are hoping to reshape those countries away from traditional cultural patriarchal norms uh, in that they have traditionally. One can't say that we're simply doing this uh, because we are about charity and human compassion. And then we have other international interests that we promote, environmental and climate action, um, peace and security, such as human rights, preventing conflicts, supporting peacekeeping efforts, and so on. So, um, you know, one can see that, that development is about the values, interests, and purposes of a nation's international policy. Let me make it go. Oh, oh yeah, there we go. Um, what we have here is that Xi Jinping's community of the common destiny of mankind, uh, which is also translated into English as the community with a shared future for mankind, is the key concept of China's foreign policy. And, you know, like our high-minded rhetoric when we talk about uh, developmental aid, China also uses high-minded rhetoric about this community of the common destiny of mankind saying it's about interdependence, cooperation, mutual respect, equality, win-win cooperation. It's purported to be about a positive China-led vision for a more just and equitable global order based on reimagined global institutions that will supersede what China regards as the fading uh, multilateral institutions of the post-war era, such as the UN, NATO, and the WTO, and you know, the idea is to implement this new global order by the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China, or a year later in 2050. The, but in fact, you know, the community of the common destiny of mankind doctrine is a strategic tool for China to advance its own national interests and gain international influence. And Xi Jinping pairs this concept by quoting his predecessor, Mao Zedong, who famously wrote, Dongfang, Yadao, Xifeng, um, the east wind will prevail over the west wind. And so China sees the US and like-minded powers as in chaos and decline, and that Xi Jinping's foreign policy doctrine asserts that China will inevitably arise to fill the vacuum of the decline of, of the West. And so China can oversee a new global order based on its regime values, displacing the institutions um, based on human rights, liberal democracy, and the equal sovereignty of nations. And ultimately, China would be the dominant power on the planet, the sole superpower. And it does, you know, hark back to traditional Chinese historiography as the Chinese emperor is the sole legitimate political authority, ruler of Tianxia, the, the all under heaven, Tianxia. Um, so when you look at development, oh, there we go. Um, this Belt and Road Initiative is really the economic aspect of the community of the common destiny of mankind it was launched in 2013 by China, and as uh, Luke mentioned, it's a massive infrastructure development project aiming to connect Asia, Africa, and Europe 
through a network of land and maritime routes. Luke said that China invested two trillion U.S. dollars in this. I, my alma mater, Fudan University, only claims a trillion. But anyway, what's a trillion? Um, ultimately, all of these networks of belts and roads terminate in China. Um, China's providing developmental assistance, mostly through loans to build and modernize ports, rail, and road infrastructure throughout the world to facilitate trade with China, particularly the transfer of minerals and other resources that are used, as one might put it, to feed the dragon of China's industrialization and uh, exports. The terms of the loans of the Belt and Road Initiative are not transparent. They typically allowed third world dictatorships to siphon off a corrupt cut without the governance and accountability of the traditional agencies such as the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. There are also concerns that Belt and Road projects too often fall short of measures to mitigate environmental impact. Many of the projects are showpieces to increase the prestige of the local regime with China's help, sports stadiums, conference centers. All the conference centers have um, stuff embedded in the wall so China can keep track of anything that goes on there. These all fall short of international development criteria. And many have been of poor construction that presents well on completion but rapidly deteriorates. Moreover, as part of the development association at the Belt and Road, China can provide dictatorships with surveillance technologies to enforce autocratic, non-democratic, repressive regimes. And the term debt trap diplomacy has been used with regard to the Belt and Road Initiative to describe a predatory strategy employed by China whereby China extends large loans to developing countries for infrastructure projects, and it has the impact of creating unsustainable debt burdens that force those countries to seize strategic assets and to make political concessions to China. Um, most notably, Sri Lanka had, was coerced, I think, to lease its Hambatota port to China for 99 years after struggling to repay loans, you know, the prospects that that port could then be used for geostrategic purposes, submarines, military base, is, you know, it's there. So the BRI is a tool for China to expand its influence and secure strategic footholds, potentially using development funding and consequent debt as um, leverage. So if I just say by conclusion, there are currently 154 countries formally affiliated with the BRI as of August 2023. Once they become economically beholden to China for development projects, as Luke pointed out, they will be compelled, if they want the money flow to continue, because remember the agreements are all secret, to support China's geostrategic agenda. So we do see, as Luke said, in the UN resolutions condemning the Uyghur genocide, have been defeated by wide margins, including votes against by countries with significant Islamic populations that are also members of the Belt and Road Initiative. Of greater concern is my observation based on some research I undertook for the Government of Canada, that countries with geostrategic advantages, such as favorably positioned harbors, tend to receive more generous BRI funding and much more forthcoming debt forgiveness 
than BRI members with less potential strategic value to China. So I judge that the challenge for Canada and our like-minded allies is how to compete with China's currying of favor with developing nations throughout the global south. As Xi Jinping prepares this groundwork for its audacious agenda of a China-dominated community of the common destiny of mankind in decades ahead. I, I feel sorry to conclude by saying that it does appear that China, Canada in our developmental um, uh, assistance programming is playing checkers poorly, uh, but China is playing a long-term and sophisticated game of chess. Seconds. Okay. Anybody? Forty seconds. Questions. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Burton. Uh, we're switching out a microphone. Uh, just, just in, in terms of scheduling, um, I hope nobody's too disappointed by this. But because we started late, and some MPs have to get a question period, I think we will, um, we'll cancel the coffee break. Feel free to stand up and get a glass of water in the midst of the speeches if you need to, and that will allow more time at the end for those who can stay to, to chat informally with each other and the speakers at the end. Uh, so. Uh, that is the plan, and now without any further ado, I'll invite uh, Ambassador Tsang to come up and speak to us. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I would like to thank uh, MP Janice for inviting me to this uh, symposium, offering me this opportunity to share uh, Taiwanese perspectives on the issues of international development and uh, its implied geopolitical uh, competition. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, Taiwan is a unique case. Uh, most countries in the world uh, do not keep official relations with Taiwan. And China insists that uh, Taiwan is not a sovereign state, but a province of the People's Republic of China. Currently, there are only, tw uh, only 12 uh, countries keeping diplomatic ties with Taiwan, while, but at the same time, uh, Taiwan keeps 100 and 15 missions in 72 countries in the world. Uh, these missions operate like embassies and consulate generals uh, in the world. For example, in Canada, we have a representative office, which I headed uh, in uh, Ottawa, and then three regional offices in Toronto, Vancouver, and uh, Montreal, respectively. But MP Janus has uh, eloquently pointed out on his, uh, uh, in his remarks that the fundamental reason for international development is uh, on the one hand to alleviate poverty and uh, create opportunities for the individuals of uh, the recipient countries and on the other hand to pursue global strategic objectives. Uh, I think this has uh, succinctly summed up the idea of uh, foreign aid and uh, international assistance uh, even though, in the case of Taiwan, obstructions from the People's Republic of China have impeded Taiwan from extending its international assistance programs, uh, which perhaps is not the challenge uh, shared by most of the other countries. But given its uh, unique international status, uh, it is understandable that Taiwan uh, prioritizes its diplomatic allies in given its foreign aid. But although Taiwan keeps only 12 diplomatic allies today, uh, the Taiwan International Cooperation and Development Fund, or Taiwan ICDF, 
which is a Taiwanese version of the USAID, has listed more than 40 countries uh, as its recipient on annual basis. So by the same token, uh, although Taiwan is not a member of the United Nations, uh, it makes every effort to fulfill its international obligations and actively responds to the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and its 17 Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. In other words, Taiwan unilaterally offers its compliance with the rules-based international norm, even though it may not be reciprocally treated. Uh, generally speaking, when it comes to helping the developing countries, Taiwan's international system includes uh, building up of infrastructures, dispatching uh, technical teams to promote agricultural or fishery projects, sending medical teams uh, to provide uh, healthcare services, offering scholarship and vocational training programs for human uh, capacity enhancement, and uh, promoting clean energy projects to help address the climate change. But if you look more carefully into our programs, you will find that our projects to developing countries are perhaps best described as people-centered assistance because it targets the grassroots of the recipient countries to enrich individual farmer and fishery families. Uh, they do not necessarily incur huge budget and so do not necessarily involve local politicians, at least not directly. And therefore, uh, there will be less, uh, it will be less likely to generate corruptions. Of course, uh, Taiwan's foreign aid is not for charity or altruism, but we really try <clears throat> our best to observe the rules of good and democratic governance. Let me turn a little bit to the uh, geopolitical competition. As I said earlier, as uh, Taiwan prioritizes its aid to the diplomatic allies, uh, but in the implementation of such policies, Taiwan often encounters its biggest challenge and hindrance from the People's Republic of China. China continues to intensify its effort to isolate Taiwan and to suppress Taiwan's international space. Since our incumbent President, uh, President Chai took office in May 2016, China has enticed 10 of our allies to switch their diplomatic ties and recognition to Beijing. The most recent example is the breakaway of a Pacific Island state, Nauru, just two days after we concluded our presidential election on January 13th. China was clearly behind the maneuver uh, due to its displeasure uh, of the election result uh, because the president-elect, Mr. Willem Lai, is not favored by Beijing. Uh, by so doing, China meant uh, to intimidate Taiwan by forcing its allies, Taiwan's allies, to switch sides and to further squeeze Taiwan's international space. In fact, uh, Beijing has been trying to enhance its influence on developing countries through the means 
of elite capture and theft traps. As Professor uh, Charles Burton has uh, mentioned in the Chinese BRI strategy, his goal is not only to isolate Taiwan diplomatically, but also to pursue a deeper strategic ambitions. For example, not long after China took over uh, Taiwan's one of Taiwan's uh, former diplomatic allies in the Pacific, the Solomon Islands, in 2019, Beijing then signed a security agreement with uh, Solomon Islands, the uh, Honiara, uh, uh, allowing China's uh, military and police uh, forces to be stationed in the Solomon Islands when necessary, uh, which has strong grave concern from the United States and Australia. While we believe that uh, Taiwan's approach uh, to the grassroots in its international assistance carries more humanitarian face. We hope that uh, we hope to make our due contributions to the world, and we have long refused to conduct the so-called checkbook diplomacy. But like the title of today's symposium, The Dance, it takes two to tangle, even in international development. Uh, it should be a concerted effort between the givers and the takers, so that uh, the endeavor will not be in vain. Well, Taiwan is eager to be part of the international efforts to provide aids, uh, including to help the after-war reconstruction in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine has lasted for, very unfortunate, for almost two years. According to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, statistics uh, of Ukraine, uh, Taiwan has contributed uh, 41 million US dollars to help rebuild infrastructure, schools, hospitals, and churches, in addition to 580 tons of donations in kind. Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has announced further contribution of 50 million US dollars uh, for uh, Ukraine this year. Not much compared with Canada, uh, but we will continue to make our uh, due contributions. Uh, let me stop here and uh, welcome the question. Yes. First of all, uh, thank you, Ambassador, uh, for addressing uh, this group here today, and congratulations on a successful election. Thank you. Uh, um, very quickly, uh, as you are aware, uh, during the election, for those who followed very closely, a lot of disinformation propaganda operations being perpetrated by the CCP inside Taiwan and outside to, to uh, exert force on, on various uh, groups, etc. The use of triads and organized crime within within uh, Taiwan specifically. This has been a problem for some time. That is also projected into Canada. Uh, I'm just curious to know comments on that and how uh, Taiwan is going to combat that in the future. Thank you. Uh, the triad and the uh, organized crime um, compared with the foreign intervention of the election is not uh, that's threatening. At least I'm talking about this most recent presidential election. Uh, what we uh, have encountered, it has been there. The Chinese intervention has been there since day one. Uh, but uh, with uh, the advance of the technology, uh, the AI-powered um, disinformation or uh, misinformation campaign uh, is tremendous in Taiwan. And um, we have found uh, during 
the, the long campaign, we have found many covert uh, media uh, personas, uh, which has a very close connection with China. And they use, uh, they use all the social medias like uh, TikTok, Xiaohongshu, uh, and uh, YouTube uh, or Facebook uh, to send the messages uh, to uh, cultivate uh, support for the candidate of their favor. And, um, so a cognitive, uh, cognitive warfare is a real concern in Taiwan. And it doesn't uh, only happen during the election, it happens on a daily basis. So uh, uh, this is the challenge we face. I thank you for your question. Thank you, Ambassador. And, and now uh, I'm pleased to invite uh, Mr. Inyangador from Wellington Advocacy. Good afternoon. Um, thank you, MP Genius, for uh, allowing me the opportunity to participate in this uh, symposium. Um, much of my comments are going to be informed by the uh, um, series of papers and uh, um, op-eds that Wellington Advocacy is uh, um, putting together in cooperation with MLI on international cooperation and advancing that uh, uh, new dynamics forward. So uh, um, international development alongside diplomacy and defense are key pillars of Canada's 3D framework for foreign relations. Currently, Canada is sixth largest donor country. We ought to have greater impact and influence across the global aid system and deploy such influence to advance Canadian interests at home and abroad. The global center of power is shifting, the rise of China, the growing influence of regional powers such as India, Saudi Arabia, Korea, Brazil, Turkey, create opportunities and threats to global stability and indeed Canada's security and economic prosperity. These new economies and rising political powers, along with the demographic transitions taking place in sub-Saharan Africa, are reshaping the international aid architecture. Canada can no longer afford to remain static in the face of these changes and the current failure to strategically coordinate Canada's diplomacy, defense and development efforts has meant that Canada's engagement in recent years has sadly had little impact. So the big question is, why is Canada struggling to find relevance? The answer in my opinion is due to the divergent principles on aid between Canada's approach versus emerging powers. And secondly, Canada's over-reliance on multilateral institutions. In this case, reliance on regards to our international development. The incentives and objectives driving international development for many of these new development partners, especially China, is self-interest. In that sense, foreign aid is foreign policy, often channeled through bilateral rather than multilateral systems, is tied to procurement of goods and services with less conditions and no transparency. On the other hand, international cooperation in Canada is largely thought as extending Canada's charity rather than a critical tool of statecraft. This approach seeks to advance global poverty reduction while playing down the use of aid to strengthen relations with developing countries to gain support for Canada's foreign policy objectives. 
to demonstrate a clear example of this thinking, a moderator just last week at a recently National Development Finance Forum here in Ottawa posed the questions to the panelists. If Canada owed developing countries in Africa a duty, responsibility to provide them with aid, the response was almost unanimous with the panelists citing Canada's obligation to international commitments like the Paris Agreement and so forth. I don't think Canada owes developing countries a responsibility to provide them with aid. Rather, Canada owes a duty to advance global stability and to grow new markets for Canadian citizens and companies to trade their goods and services. In doing so, cooperating with developing countries, especially in Africa, is a strategic and economic imperative for Canada, while, which will support poverty alleviation while promoting Canadian interest. In advancing international cooperation, multilateralism for its own sake shouldn't be our North Star. The desire to merely seek to uphold the status quo and the fetishization of dialogues needs re-evaluation. Our guiding light must be advancing Canadian interests in concert with addressing global issues. In the age of geopolitical competition, we can no longer take for granted that every multilateral organization is aligned with our national interests in our foreign policy of goals. There is a mounting tension between West and its key allies, Asian allies, and the global authoritarian axis comprising of China, Russia, and Iran. We can no longer assume that the political differences with these multilateral systems are negligible. Canada has always been an advocate for multilateralism, and indeed we should continue to do so, because China and Russia do not seek to only redistribute global power, but they also want to change the basic rules that govern international cooperation. For these reasons, we need to reassess our values and policies that drive Canada's international cooperation. However, our engagement in multilateralism should not be guided by naive globalism. Becoming strategic in our engagement starts with a full review of Canada's international cooperation activities. Moving from multilateral engagements guided by slogans to what our colleague Baran has termed as unilateral cooperation, driven by small issue-based narrow groupings of like-minded states. This also means that we need to end duplicate mandates within, the, within global institutions. For example, Canada is a member of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which was created at the end of the Cold War. Does it still make sense to be spending Canadian development money on Europe? Most Canadians will agree we no longer need to be a member of the European Development Bank, where Canadian international development funds are going to support oil and gas pipelines in Turkey and Russia. Equally, we should end our membership with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, aka the Chinese Bank for Global Influence, and stop representing China at the African Development Bank. I mean, how naive can it be that a, very, a major global competitor like China is represented by our executive director at the African Development Bank? This review should address the issue that Canada has developed an unfortunate reputation of being a nation that wants to be at every table, but is not a serious contributor at any table. Neither our allies nor our foes are buying what we've got to sell, and by all accounts, we currently don't have seem to have much to offer, irrespective of the fact that Canada is back. 
we need to also start thinking of international cooperation as part of statecraft and not some sort of charity. Good intentions are not a substitute for clear goals and metrics to measure success. We have a real interest in a robust international cooperation program that advances projects that make real difference, but that requires that we have good reason to think that these projects will support actually, that we support will actually make a difference. So, conclusion, we need a new dynamic model for international cooperation that will prioritize partnerships with a broad range of non-profit and for-profit Canadian organizations, rather than trusting some levels of technocrats in global institutions to make all decisions for us. We need an approach that promotes the use of innovative financing models to de-risk market for Canadian investors and unlock the significant money that traditional grant-based funding is, has been wanting to do. This renewal approach should be one that looks beyond government to bring in the private sector, NGOs, faith groups, diaspora organizations in particular, in formulating and carrying out our renewed international cooperation strategy and moving forward to beyond state-to-state -state foreign aid. I will stop there and take questions. Just under two minutes left. It was sweet. It was very engaging, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask questions. Since Why not? Sorry. Uh, so I, I agree with you in terms of the approach to a, a more bilateral approach to our uh, global aid and actually building up financial models that actually empower uh, nations uh, in Africa, et cetera, to move forward. Uh, in terms of what you've observed vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the uh, nexus between Iran, China, Russia, which we've seen their development programs throughout Africa, undermining democracy, uh, how do you think we as a democracy here in Canada should fight back and, and help nations uh, in their development needs? Yeah, good question. Um, I think first and foremost, I think we need to realize that most of those partners that we work with are, uh, in Africa, most of those countries, are um, a different approach to international development than we do now. And, uh, um, and the attraction of China and Russia and Iran and Turkey is something that, you know, are, um, is of immense importance to them because they are all political entities trying to survive the next either coup or maintain their governments going forward. I think approach that we would take are, um, to help us regain footing in say in Africa would be to partner with this triangular cooperation. So look to work you know, with countries like India, countries like UAE to have third party uh, tripartite uh, um, agreements to do work and support development in Africa. Secondly, I think uh, um, if I were to make a suggestion to you, Garnet, and the MPs here, we need to move from this idea of having an African strategy to actually putting together a legislation that says Canada-Africa Strategic Cooperation Act that brings the whole of Canada into it, and not just development, but diplomacy trade, security, people to people, social and cultural partnerships. We need an overall 360 approach to that. To that. And if we did that, we will now become a player again in Africa. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, now I'm pleased to welcome uh, Susan Namulinda.
Good afternoon, everybody. It is a huge pleasure to be here, and I'm going to start with a quick question. Have you ever been stuck in a friend zone? <laughs> or know somebody who got stuck in a friend zone? For all best intentions and purposes, it is painful to watch. And I'm a mother of young adults now, and I have that lived experience, and, and it is still painful to watch. Why do I start like that? It's because Canada, for all the best intents and purposes, ah, if not there in a friend zone, very close to being there. And we need to move out of there. So I'm here to talk about the intersection of trade and development. I am so Canadian that I've lived through 23 years of winter. And I'm still here. But I'm so African that I know where my great-great-grandfather is buried. I'm a first-generation immigrant. And I love these two places dearly. And for the first time in my 23 years, this past Christmas, I was, in, I was in Kenya. I was away from Ottawa. And I actually told somebody that I want to go home. And, I'm, ah, and I wanted to come back to Ottawa. Why do I start with all this? It's because Canada is nice. Canada is a good development partner. Canada is a good peacekeeper. And Canada is called on every time there's trouble anywhere in Africa. But is that the best thing that we can do? For both the Canadians and the Africans, and for people like me who have legs in both places, is that the best thing we can do? I think development is a great thing. But we've all, in every language in the world, there is that part about, don't give me a fish, teach me how to fish. And by insisting on being a good development partner, Canada is doing a disservice. Now, I'm not saying that they will say there's, uh, there's trouble in the DRC, there's trouble in, uh, and Canada don't get up and do something. But if that's what we are known for, and the little lovely, uh, you know, like a maple leaf on, on luggage tags and everything else, we're not doing what we could. And for the, and, and, and you will forgive me again because of the young adults I have in my house, I'll say FOMO. You know, we fear uh, of, of missing out on the, on the action and trade and activities on Africa, and yet, we are too timid to get in. Canadian, uh, you know, like I come, if I haven't said so already, I come from Uganda, I come from East Africa, and, and I grew up, uh, um, what paid my school fees is coffee. You know, um, I come from a farming family and I know everything about coffee, ask me. I don't drink it because otherwise I'll be wired, I'll be bouncing off of this wall. But I know everything about coffee. <clears throat> But if Canada is thinking about uh, 
helping with the coffee and I and and the word that comes to me about help is a bad word because we should not be helping we should be collaborating we should be developing this value chain and bringing every interest that Canada knows, the fair trade practices, the fair, the fairness in making everything and teaching the people that grow this coffee, the best farming practices, how you look after the land, how do you do the silos, how do you... In doing that, Canadian companies benefit and African companies benefit. And the African woman in my village when she brings her coffee to the coffee miller, she will get a fair price because we have worked with it. This business of insisting on development, honestly, makes it look as if we cannot engage on one-on-one. -on -one. If I walked in here asking for assistance, I would not have been given that seat. I would have probably not have made it through the security get downstairs because I'm coming to ask for something. Here I am, coming as a, an individual with something to give. I'm welcomed and I have a seat right there. Why can't we bring the front line of trade, you know? Why can't we trade with, with, with Africa? Why can't we trade with our partners and bring that trade component to lift people out of that imbalance? Because if I'm coming to ask for something, I'm gonna be, I don't know, uh, did I dress properly? Did I whatever? Uh, are, they, what, are they going to give me $10 if I, you know, maybe I need 50, but if I ask for 50, will they give me? So I'll compromise and ask for 10. If I have something to sell, I'll say this book is $3. Thank you very much. Pay your $3 or go. Or we can negotiate as equals where there's a value. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop because I do not like to talk much, I would, I'd rather engage and, and answer questions. There are practical ways on how we can move, we can use the development dollars that we have to make a difference. I'll give you one example. I've found out recently that Nova Scotia, you know, we are all talking about the international students and all that. Nova Scotia, I mean, uh, the University of Dal is, has, has instituted a program where people do two years in Africa and two years in, in, in Adal. How beautiful is that? It reduces the cost. It brings the best. By the time they come after two years, they, are the be they know what they are doing and they are going to succeed instead of bringing them as freshmen away from their countries and they don't know what they're going to do. There's another example. I'm going to stay with education. You'll forgive me, my age group is right there, so I'm, I'm, I'm really looking into that. Imagine if Canadian universities did knowledge transfer and we, export, we did that knowledge exchange and we trained the skilled workers that we need, nurses, plumbers and everybody, and brought them here on a level-footed exchange instead of as, as refugees begging and sleeping on the sidewalks and all that. Folks, this afternoon, there's a, something to be said about trade. Trade gives me power. Trade, if I sell something, I'm not begging. If I sell something, I'm taking my kids to school. If I get 
money through my government coming through whatever, maybe 10 cents will get down to the people who need them. However, if I sell something, my children will live in dignity. That's the case I would like to make. Can we use our development dollars and invest them strategically and improve trade? That will improve the trade deficit that Canada has with, the, with Africa. I'm going to speak with Africa because I know Africa. The whole of trade with the whole continent of, of Africa and the country of Canada is less than what happens on the border in, in the East African region. I'll stop there. I'll take some questions. I will sit down. One and a half minutes. As a director of uh, executive development in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, what do you I'll give you one that is taking me to Nairobi next week. I'm bringing a Canadian company that is right here that is uh, doing a $300 million uh, investment opportunity developing water at the Lake Victoria region in the county of Kakamega um, in Bungoma in, in Kenya. I have, uh, I have another company going to do coffee commodities fund, uh, working with uh, commodities fund in Kenya for the coffee value chain. This is what I breathe, this is what I do. I'm African too, so I can relate to this. But it's always as you said, when you have a book to sell, there must be a customer to buy. If there is no customer to buy, that trade will never happen. So who will introduce the commodities in those African countries to those companies around here that the trade can happen? Because if Canada is not interested in the product it's sold in there, they will not want to invest. So how can this happen? Ah, plug for Africa Trade Desk. <laughs> That's what I live and do. But right, let, me, let me ask you a, a quick question. How much coffee well, is drunk just in this building? But it depends which country is willing to sell the coffee. Oh, every so country is willing to. The suitable amount of money that the Canadians will buy. So it's the market demand and need and that you're meeting the customer with the product available. The products are not lacking. I can give you a handful of Canadian companies that are in the extractive industry that are in, in Africa. If you think about cashew nuts, the cashew nuts we eat here come from Africa via Vietnam and they get back here. You talk about coffee, everything, you know, coffee, maybe not, tea, pretty much all, talk about cocoa. Have you had a, a, a chocolate lately? And, and, and it says it's a Swiss chocolate. When did you see cocoa growing in Switzerland? <laughs> Where do these products come from? They are dressed. Even this, I bought it. I won't tell you where I bought it. But underneath it is cotton, which comes and then gets developed. The products are there, the development there. Call me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, and now we'll have uh, Zakia. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Honored to be here. Yeah. And I, I would talk about um, Myanmar and development in Myanmar and geopolitics. 
little bit of Myanmar. This is uh, our country is strategically located in Indo-Pacific region in Southeast Asia. We have a diverse, most diverse country in the Southeast Asia with over 135 ethnic groups. The Burma is a major majority. And the rest are smaller. And then we have a, the Buddhism as a majority in Myanmar. And then the, the, our country is being under the military dictators for over 50 decades, oh, sorry, five decades. So based on the ethnic uh, divisive lines and the religion. And our country is strategically located in Indo-Pacific region. Northeast superpower China. Northwest major power India and the most populous country in the world, Bangladesh. The South West and the South and Indian Ocean, Bayo Bengal and Edmund Sea. Southwest, Southeast and the East, Thailand and Laos. <clears throat> Brief history, we, we gained a, a independence from Britain in 1948. And then we, are, we were under the parliamentary democracy system until 1962 military station coup. Successive military regimes ruled the country ruthlessly until 2010, uh, and then we have the brief democratization period for about 10 years. That time that we have growth opportunities, investment opportunities, and that we were the strongest growth in the Southeast Asia in that decade. But unfortunately, 2021 February, military station coup against the elected civilian governments and then one military, Myanmar military is the one of the most brutal militaries in the world. So uh, we have a law, uh, elected lawyer, uh, lawmakers and the ethnic representatives, civil societies formed the National Unity Government of Myanmar. I'm the spokesperson for the president office. The development, so Myanmar is a, has a, Abundant of natural resources, you name it, everything is there. Oil and gas, rare earth, mining opportunities, jade, sapphire, rubies, timber, agricultural land. But our, our development story is very complex with a huge potential but significant reversal. Since 2021, coup three years ago, just well, at the first, first was at third, we have over 50,000 people died within three years. And with the Russian supplies, fighter jets, and then military, uh, the attack helicopters, and then as two days ago, that um, military bomb, that middle school in the current state, and the school children were studying. In 2011, as I mentioned, we have a brief democratization period with the loss of development, and then, but unfortunately, and it was brief. And then also, I just want to, okay. And then Japan was the largest ODA 
contributor, total $1.8 billion in 2019. And then at that time, Myanmar was the world's darling dealer to uh, country donors, countries to deliver the AIDS. For example, in 2013, it reached $4.5 billion. It is about 800% increase from prior year 2012. And one of the top priority the coup, Singapore, China, Thailand, Marshall Islands, and Hong Kong were the top investors. And, and after the coup, still the same, Singapore, China, and Thailand. Singapore is top, but Singapore counted as in the Singapore, including the non-Singaporean entities registered in Singapore. Most of them are Chinese companies. So China is the most influential in terms of investments development in Burma. Still there. Since the coup, Western nations and then Japan stopped providing aids to Burma, Myanmar, but China still continue in the different forms. China interests, as you can see in the map, those are the dots that you can see, and are from China and Myanmar. The China is the most influential influence over Myanmar, with the major development projects. That's a part of Belt and Road. In in that in terms, they call it China Myanmar Economic Corridor. And they active. They not only in the business and development. They active in the in names of peace process, forcing the pro-democracy forces to stop fighting against a military dictator. So that's the map that you can see. Here is from the Indian Ocean. They built the oil and gas pipeline, and then railroad, and then um, the highway to the landlocked Yunnan province, and up to um, why a gas pipeline ended the Kuming and the highway ended at the Nanning near the Vietnamese border in the landlocked So that's a one, over 1,000 kilometer gas and oil pipeline from Indian Ocean to the landlocked uh, China. So they, they can reach to the South Asia, East Africa, West Asia, and Europe by passing challenging area, uh, the, the South China Sea and the Malacca Strait. Fortunately or unfortunately, our another neighbor is a major power, India. India and China are always competing in a war stage. India look East policy and the India engaged with Myanmar during that brief democratization period, and that they connected through highway. Highway is from India to Myanmar and Southeast Asia. And then from the sea port, from India Eastern port to Myanmar Western, and then from there, go back to India, landlock um, the, the states. And then that highway is from India, Myanmar became the land corridor for India to Southeast Asia. 
Thailand Highway and the Kaladam project. So now, so I didn't put in my slides, but Russia also selling the arms, and then Myanmar also exporting back the arms to Russia, um, and then as uh, Ukrainian intelligence reported. Another neighbor, China, Thailand. Thailand has a huge influence in Myanmar development, and the Bangladesh and Laos are very limited, even though Bangladesh hosted million refugees from Myanmar, but development uh, cooperation is very limited. But in recently, that we call it Operation 1027, October 27, the states and offensives against the military forces, the military lost all the border posts in China area and India, uh, India area. So India and China are cooperating with uh, the military while the West supporting the pro-democracy forces. And I won't skip that uh, Thailand. You can see that Thai also are beneficial from Burma. But I will conclude my presentation of that, that geopolitics. Myanmar is strategically located in the Indo-Pacific Indo uh, region. And then China is a biggest player in Myanmar development and also the political arena. And then India competing China in Myanmar but they're catching up, they, they, are, they are behind China. And, uh, but, I, uh, but even though India is the world's demo, largest democratic country, but India, India providing assistance to most brutal military in the war, bomber military, together with China. Why? Because of money and then trade opportunity with East Asia. But we really thankful for Canada, U.S. and other countries that are supporting diplomatically, politically, but development, and then we have over 18 million, population of 55 million people, which is almost 40 million people need the humanitarian assistance daily. So this way that we, we are dancing, uh, strat strategically balancing with the superpowers, the major powers, but we need help from countries like Canada, and then Ghana is being the strongest supporter in this fight together for our freedom and democracy. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm sure people will have uh, questions and feedback during the, the informal session as well. Uh, and now our, our final speaker, uh, um, Ali Nasari. Uh, Mr. Janis, uh, distinguished members of parliament, and ladies and gentlemen, uh, good, e uh, good afternoon. It is, of course, a privilege to be here today. Uh, and I thank Mr. Janis for giving us this opportunity to raise this uh, important uh, topic and to share our views about international development and geopolitics throughout the globe. And we've had very uh, informative and um, and uh, insightful uh, presentations today. Of course, my remarks, which I'll keep uh, as brief and simple as possible uh, within, the, uh, within the 10 minutes that has been granted to me, 
is to discuss uh, the situation within Afghanistan. Of course, as all of you know, uh, in 2021, uh, NATO hastily withdrew from the country. It caused the collapse of Republican Afghanistan, Afghanistan's democratic government, which was heavily dependent. The government and the armed forces was heavily dependent on the presence of NATO, especially the United States, inside the country. And this created a power vacuum, which the Taliban terrorist organization, which uh, only had around 40 to 45,000 forces in a country made up of 40 million, um, suddenly found the opportunity and it, uh, grasped it and came to power. Um, and for the last two and a half years, uh, we've seen a country the size of France uh, hijacked by the Taliban terrorist organization and 20 other regional and international terror groups. And this has put a pause on international development. It has created a multifaceted um, um, crisis in, inside the country. Afghanistan is uh, suffering from a political crisis, a crisis of political legitimacy, economic crisis, security crisis, and the most important one being the humanitarian crisis, which is the largest humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan's modern history. And for the past two and a half years, the international community has very much um, uh, adopted a policy of pouring uh, hundreds of millions, and has exceeded even a billion dollars of international aid through international organizations, multilateral organizations, and uh, even directly. For, for example, the United States uh, sends around 30 to 32 million dollars of aid of US uh, of, of uh, US dollar cash on a weekly basis. But has this approach alleviated the hu uh, humanitarian crisis? Has it improved the lives of Afghanistan citizens? It hasn't. Unfortunately, uh, we're seeing human rights violations. The Taliban have deprived women from their basic rights, have completely erased them from public life and have established a gender apartheid. Uh, we're seeing that a handful of clerics, extremist clerics and terrorists are ruling over a large country made up of 40 million, have completely uh, disregarded Afghanistan's religious diversity ethnic diversity, and so forth, and have allowed an influx of foreign terrorist fighters and regional and international terrorist groups to use Afghanistan as a haven to challenge the rules-based international order, to align Afghanistan to authoritarian and totalitarian regimes around the globe, and uh, potentially to threaten global security. And we're seeing the impact of this uh, takeover by the Taliban terrorist organization uh, in, in South Asia, with the increase of terrorist uh, activities within Pakistan and Central Asia and the greater Middle East. And we are seeing signs of it even in the Western world. Why hasn't the international aid 
changed the, the uh, situation within Afghanistan. Why is the humanitarian crisis, even though aid is still pouring into Afghanistan, is worsening, is exacerbating? And the reason is you have a hostile group, a terrorist organization inside Afghanistan, that is only looking after its own interests, disregarding the interests of Afghanistan, Afghanistan's people. And they are creating the conditions for uh, this humanitarian crisis to exacerbate and to challenge uh, the, the stability of the region and, of course, global security as well. For example, uh, the Taliban have been allowing, because of the humanitarian crisis, allowing an influx of refugees westwards toward the western border of Afghanistan with countries like Iran and then with others have been left open. We've seen an influx of 1.5 million citizens from Afghanistan take refuge in these countries. Of course, these refugees aren't going to stay in countries like Iran or Iraq or Turkey and so forth. The target is to migrate to the Western world, to the democratic world. This will allow the Taliban and their uh, regional and international terror networks and other authoritarian regimes that are supporting them to gain a leverage against the democratic world. And of course, the international community lacks a, rea a realistic policy to prevent this from happening. This said, another consequence of this is the Taliban are allowing this wave of migration westwards in order to allow these foreign terrorist organizations, these foreign terrorist fighters that are flooding into Afghanistan to disguise themselves as refugees, to infiltrate within Europe, to infiltrate within other countries in the region and possibly North America in the future as well. And again, we're seeing international aid being poured into Afghanistan and, and uh, allowing the conditions for the, these consequences to, to, to be achieved. What should be uh, done? Um, and of course, all of what I've been uh, stating are verifiable information. The United Nations Security Council report that came out in June 2023 verified this, that the Taliban are granting passports and citizenship to foreign fighters, to terrorist fighters from different countries to dis in order to disguise themselves as refugees, that there is more than 21 regional and international terrorist groups supported by the Taliban, and how international aid is being exploited by the Taliban. CIGAR, for example, the U.S. agency that oversees aid, came out with a report six, seven months ago verifying how the Taliban are exploiting international aid that is benefiting, of course, internet uh, terrorist groups. Just a week ago, the UN Security Council report came out with another report saying that in the last year, Al-Qaeda being just one of the terror uh, networks inside Afghanistan has been able to expand its training camps, eight new training camps throughout Afghanistan. And just imagine, as long as Afghanistan is being ignored, how much complex and complicated and dangerous the situation will become for global security. So what should be done? Of course, the National Resistance Front, uh, being the largest democratic uh, party and force within Afghanistan, with presence outside of Afghanistan as well, and other democratic forces. We've been 
proposing uh, a solution that can basically address not only this domestic and regional problem, but this global challenge as well, which will harm global security in the future. And one way is to emulate what happened back in the 1990s when the Taliban were in control of parts of Afghanistan, was allowing the democratic forces of Afghanistan to carve a free zone within the country to allow the civil society to thrive, to preserve itself, to allow democratic forces to establish themselves as the legitimate government of Afghanistan, and to potentially create the conditions for at least international uh, development, for a better uh, healthcare system, for a better economy, and for uh, infrastructure to improve, at least in parts of the country, that will allow the people of Afghanistan to gradually liberate their country from this nightmare. And of course, countries like Canada, which have had a firm stance when it comes to terrorism, especially the situation in Afghanistan and the uh, reign of terror and tyranny that the Taliban have established to um, adopt a policy where the rest of the international uh, community can emulate and allow the democratic forces of Afghanistan to return Afghanistan to the international community and to prevent the worst that can happen, much worse than September 11, 2001 and other terrorist groups. And we're seeing the uh, resurgence of terrorism, unfortunately, throughout the globe. Thank you once more. I'm available for any questions that there might be. Thank you, Mr. Davis. Well, thank you very much, uh, all of you. I know it's a little bit hot in the room, um, but, uh, but the, the discussion has been even hotter. So I, uh, I hope you've all enjoyed it. Uh, I know uh, for myself and, and uh, members of parliament, we will have to rush off to question period because I will uh, be in some trouble with the whip if I'm not there in, uh, in three minutes. Um, but but please, uh, please remain, uh, interact with the speakers. Uh, I think there's a, a fair bit of food left. Um, uh, I, I, I'm slated for some uh, concluding remarks here, and I, I will just briefly again uh, recognize and appreciate the, the insight of the speakers. And um, uh, while, while appreciating and taking nuggets from all of them, I think, I think the one thing that will stick with me most is that Canada needs to get out of the friend zone. Um, and I, if we if we have another symposium next year, maybe that will be our, our title. And I, I think I think it's it's a good. Um, um, in a way, it's it's a it's a good way of kind of summarizing some of the challenges we seem to have in international relations and diplomacy. That I think Canadians would perceive that we are doing a lot to try to contribute to the world. Um, yet, yet, if we are seeking a particular kind of relationship to emerge in the context of these contributions, that that kind of uh, influence or relationship doesn't seem to be emerging in the context of our. Uh, of our uh, of our engagement, so um, that is something I'm going to reflect more on: is how we get Canada out of the out of the friend zone, uh, and having the kind of of uh, relationships that we want to have uh, strategically, impactfully, um, while also uh, fighting poverty and advancing justice. Um, so this is, I think, the beginning of more conversations than the end of them. Uh, I hope you, you uh, all appreciated the conversations uh, that happened and uh, look forward to continuing to engage uh, with you in the days, weeks, months, years ahead.
Thank you very much.